for those of us who like to think of ourselves as enlightened members of a free and scientifically normed society, today's scripture readings give us several occasions for pause. Or alternatively, for skipping lightly on to the next sentence. In our second lesson, the Apostle Paul is writing to Christians in the city of Corinth about meat sacrificed to idols. Is that really something that we need to be concerned about, we ask? In Mark, Jesus is casting unclean spirits out of people. When was the last time the World Health Organization or the Centers for Disease Control warned us of an unclean spirit outbreak? In short, we ask, what does this have to do with us? And how much credence should we give to stories about spirits, clean or unclean? These are legitimate questions, but sometimes we ask them to distract ourselves from facing the more obvious and often more significant import of the story. As we've heard before from Mark Twain, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts I do understand. So the first thing to remember is that we need to exercise our reading comprehension skills when reading the Bible, much as we do when reading other texts. The Bible is primarily about God, not about idols or unclean spirits. But idols and unclean spirits come up in the Bible, not as the central characters on which we are to focus, but as foils and as spoilers. Idols are peripheral pretenders and diverting distractions from the true God, who is central, on whom we are to focus, and who is worthy of our worship. In the Gospel of Mark, unclean spirits counterintuitively direct our attention to God, and to Jesus in particular. Even when his closest disciples don't recognize him, Unclean spirits proclaim that Jesus is the Holy One of God. And however limited our personal experience with unclean spirits, the Gospel of Mark does little to draw our attention to them per se. In a culture like that of the first century Near East, where the reality and prevalence of spirits was taken for granted, the evil spirits in the Gospel of Mark point us to Jesus, the worthy object of our attention. That's the first point. Spirits are not central. The unclean spirits are not central, and neither are idols. But second, they are there. And if we fancy ourselves enlightened readers of the Bible and think that belief in unclean spirits and the practice of sacrificing food to idols is so 20 centuries ago and irrelevant now in our enlightened 21st century, then we have to face the fact that it's we who have a rather provincial view of the world. Because the fact is, that for many, if not most, hearers of the gospel today, the gospel of Mark's references to unclean spirits only make it more realistic and believable, not less. Furthermore, food is sacrificed and offered to idols at least as often today 
as it was in ancient Corinth. As a remedy for our pseudo-enlightenment, allow me to suggest travel, perhaps even as far as the nearest restaurant, gas station, or grocery store with the shrine to Vishnu, or the kitchen god, Zhao Shen, in the back. You don't have to go far. Especially in cultures where meat is a rare and nutritious supplement to a nutrient-scarce diet, Paul's teaching about eating food sacrificed to idols is at least as relevant today as it was in first century Corinth. Third, when hearing scripture like our Bible readings today, we may ask the legitimate question. Now, I realize that lots of people may encounter food sacrificed to idols more than I do, and that they may believe in unclean spirits. And we may say to ourselves, I don't think those issues are necessarily central to the Bible. But what I want to know as one who faces different issues and understands the world differently is, does being a Christian mean that I need to A, pay more attention to how I behave affects others, as Paul suggests in 1 Corinthians 8, verses 8 through 13, and B, I'd like to know if I'm supposed to believe as a Christian that spirits can possess people and engage in what I've heard called spiritual warfare. To question A, about whether we should pay more attention to how what we do impacts other people, the answer is probably that we should. While we shouldn't let the possibility of offending someone paralyze us into inaction, one hallmark of Christian behavior is being sensitive to the needs of others. And here's one way, for example, that we could do that. We can practice solidarity with those who are adhering to discipline. For example, not drinking alcohol in the presence of people it offends or for whom it is a potentially harmful temptation. We can try to find out ahead of time if we think it may affect other people in a negative way and err on the side of caution, even if it's not something that offends our conscience or that we consider to be inherently sinful. For example, another example, when I had a Muslim tenant, he appreciated me waiting until sundown to make dinner during Ramadan, since he was not eating during the day that month. And I appreciate people, Christian or otherwise, practicing manners like not interrupting others in conversation, not leaving their shopping cart in the middle of an aisle, and using their turn signals when driving, even if those things don't bother them. They bother me, and I appreciate them being sensitive to my needs and the safety of others. And here's a final and converse example. If we know that our presence is going to rain on someone else's party because our conscience might be offended, like my presence might at a fashion show or at a liver and onions banquet, two things I do not enjoy, 
then we can be sensitive to others and practice Christian charity by finding ourselves something else to do and letting folks have their fun. We will make mistakes, of course, but simply making the effort to take other people's needs into account goes a long way to living in the spirit of being sensitive to those whose consciences are offended in the spirit of 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Okay, how about that other question, question B, that we asked earlier. Does reading today's scripture lessons tell us that we need to believe that spirits can possess people and engage in spiritual warfare? I'll say it once more. If you're ever asked on a standardized reading comprehension test, what is the main point of Mark 1, 21 through 28? Choose answer that says helping to recognize who Jesus is rather than teaching us to hunt and field dress an unclean spirit. Any theology that distracts us from the first by focusing on the second is a form of idolatry as much as those that Paul addressed in 1 Corinthians 8. So there's the disclaimer. Now to answer the question, it is worth considering what we think of the idea of being possessed or influenced by a spirit. Even if we have a hard time relating to accounts of spirits that convulse some people and shout at others, I see no reason to rule out the possibility of possession by spirits, even if they seem foreign and strange to us. Responsible scientists don't force us or even ask us to do that on scientific grounds, in, because, in part because what unclean spirits are is not what scientists call well-characterized in Scripture. That is, they aren't described in detail with reference to reproducible physical phenomena, which is not surprising since the Bible isn't primarily about them. It's tempting to think that we are immune from external influences, that spirits are not things that we have to worry about, that we are fortresses impervious to the zeitgeist, the spirit of our times, and that we are our own masters. But just two weeks ago, if you'll recall, as we were reminded in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20, we are not our own. In Romans 7, Paul speaks of doing what he doesn't want to do and of not doing what he does. He's not in control of himself, at least not fully. And to say that is not a cop-out, an abdication of responsibility. It's humility and an honest facing of human frailty. Few people would deny that there are physical forces in the world that are stronger than we are. And that's true of spiritual forces, too. We need God to deal with them because we cannot do it ourselves. God comes to us in holy baptism to cover us in his righteousness, and he pours into us his Holy Spirit. He fills us with himself, and he puts us on a diet of his word and supper, replacing and repelling any other spirit that would possess us. 
That diet of word and sacrament is a continuing process of exorcism and spiritual warfare. As we hear God's word week in and week out, it permeates us and reveals the parasitic, unclean spirits that would infect us and turn us away from God and back in to ourselves. God's word reminds us of his costly and great gift of salvation, of his promise of forgiveness. And as we receive Holy Communion, Christ, our spiritual warrior and champion, purges us of the unclean spirits that tempt us with counterfeit offers of cheap, do-it-yourself salvation. Possessed by spirits? Yes, we are. God found us possessed drunk on unclean spirits, and filthy in sin. From that unsavory condition, he called us his own in holy baptism. He has washed, clothed, and filled us with himself instead, and he loves and cares for us today. Having then been rescued from forces of evil against which we could not defend ourselves, May God's good word fill us today with humility and with sensitivity to our neighbor's needs, bearing the fruit of that most desirable, real, and worthy of spirits, God's own Holy Spirit.